We've begun the season of Advent in which we are invited to contemplate the darkness of our world, our ongoing need for salvation, our longing for Jesus to return, our struggles with sin and suffering, and our search for wholeness and healing. But alongside this contemplation of darkness and struggle, Advent also invites us to more fully inhabit God's story of redemption. That just as the Old Testament saints waited and longed for the first coming of Jesus, so too we wait and long for the second coming of Jesus with certain hope. The hope is certain. Jesus came once and he will come again. But for now, we must wait in hope while living in this world that is still full of darkness and struggle. So with that introduction, we'll sing a bit and then I'll come back. Please stand with us.
fitting that our culminating chapel on the divine drama of the Old Testament comes at the beginning of Advent. 
We've traced the story from creation through to the Babylonian exile and the voices of the prophets that speak truth and call us to repentance and promise restoration. In our Christian Bibles, the Old Testament ends with the prophet Malachi, through whom Yahweh promises that he will send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And so we're left with a sense of anticipation of what is still to come. But did you know that the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, ends with the book of Chronicles? And did you know that Chronicles ends in an incomplete sentence? The chronicler concludes by recounting how Cyrus, king of Persia, allowed the exiled Judeans to leave Babylon to return to their land and to rebuild Yahweh's temple in 538 BC. But the final thought is incomplete and leaves us hanging by saying, and he will go up, dot, dot, dot. So, whether we take the Christian order and end with Malachi or the Jewish order and end with Chronicles, we are left hanging with a sense of anticipation, with a longing for closure and completion. So what are we to do with this? How are we to live in the hanging anticipation? I think one clear answer given to us in the Old Testament is that we should look for God in the unexpected. Now notice I have unexpected in quotation marks because, as I will make the case, uh, I don't think it's actually unexpected in terms of God's character. It's only unexpected in our experience. If you read the Bible with any attention or depth, you'll begin to discern patterns within the divine drama of Scripture. We see humans repeat behaviors, choices, responses, and mistakes until we can predict the trajectory of events with relative ease and accuracy. It doesn't take us long when reading the Torah to figure out the Israelites' pattern of being rescued by God, then grumbling and complaining, longing to return to Egypt, and then God's miraculous provision alongside his discipline. The narrative of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, they all reiterate this pattern. When Israel trusts God and humbly obeys, God's presence with them provides and protects amidst danger and need. On the other hand, when Israel forgets God and defiantly disobeys by worshiping idols, God's presence with them brings discipline, judgment, and purification of rebellion and sin. The pattern is so glaringly obvious that we inwardly groan and say, not again, you fools. How could you be so stupid? We humans are so very distorted by our rebellion and suffering that we are, as St. Augustine described us, incurvatus in se, curved in on ourselves. And from our state of incurvatus in se, we can discern another pattern within Scripture. As we travel through Genesis and experience the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the pattern becomes obvious. God often chooses the unexpected. It happens so frequently that we might begin to scratch our heads at the oddity of it. In order to make a great and numerous and famous people, God chooses, no, those aren't all supposed to end up at the same time. Oh, well, technology is not my best friend. We'll just go with it. Uh, So, 
uh, in order to make a great and numerous and famous people, God chooses Abraham and Sarah, an older couple with no children because Sarah was barren. Though Ishmael is Abraham's oldest son, the younger son Isaac is the son who receives the promised blessing. Isaac marries Rebekah, who is barren. Rebekah finally becomes pregnant with twins. And again, the younger son Jacob is the one through whom God chooses to carry out covenant relationship. Jacob marries Leah and then Rachel, both of whom experience barrenness and then miraculous pregnancies. What's going on here? Why does God so consistently choose the unexpected? We can trace the pattern of God choosing and working through the unexpected throughout the Old Testament. Joseph, the almost youngest of Jacob, an arrogant punk of a brother who becomes second in command to Pharaoh and is able to rescue his family from death by famine. Hagar, an Egyptian slave woman, is the first person in the Bible to give God a name. Tamar, a Canaanite woman, unjustly shamed and publicly disgraced by her father-in-law Judah, and then she's the one through whom Judah's line, the line of David, the line of Jesus, is saved because she pursued righteousness. What about the midwives, Sifra and Puah? Mothers, Moses' mother and sister, Pharaoh's daughter, Moses' wife, Zipporah, all of whom subverted and undermined the powerful Pharaoh, rescuing the Hebrews' future deliverer. And the Israelites, of course, themselves are a massively unexpected choice. Would you stand and read these with me? Moses says to the people as they're sitting on the plains of Moab waiting to enter the land, he's reminding them about who they are and why God is working through them together. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Unexpected. What about this? Together. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving you this day. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. And one more. Together. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, sorry, the Canaanites, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. 
It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take, to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand then that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Thank you. You may be seated. But we have more unexpected people. Again, these were all supposed to come up one by one. That's okay. What about Yael, a Kenite woman, non-Israelite, who kills Sisera in the book of Judges? Great story. Yael, where are you? Great name. Y'all should plan on naming one of your daughters Yael. Amazing, unexpected. Gideon, who says of himself, I am the least of the least. Why are you coming to me? Ruth, a Moabite, who also ends up in the line of David. Hannah, again, barren, and she becomes the mother of Samuel. Samuel is chosen, not Eli's sons who end up being ridiculously wicked. David, again, the youngest son, not the oldest. Amos, a shepherd first, not a son of a prophet. So when he's interacting with the northern kingdom king, uh, I don't remember who it is anymore. Anyway, he says, northern kingdom of Israel is really mad. And he's like, Amos, you Judahite, Go home back to where you came from. And Amos' response is like, hey, don't look at me. I was just a shepherd minding my own freaking business. And then I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet. And God called me to do this. Do you think I signed up for this? No, no. And then we have Daniel, Nehemiah, and Esther, exiled Jews at the center of the foreign enemy empire. Unexpected. What about unexpected places? Abraham, he's called from Ur of the Chaldees. That's the ancient Babylonians. Aren't the Babylonians the enemy? Well, Abraham, the father of them all, is from there. Egypt, a land of plenty turned enslavement. This is where God works. And we see this ongoing recurring theme of God working in wilderness places and exile. So we have the 40 years of wandering, David running from Saul. Think of all the Psalms that David wrote while running from Saul, hiding out in the Judean wilderness. He encounters God there. What about Elijah running from Jezebel? Goes all the way down south, down into the Negev and the desert, and he encounters God there. Babylonian exile the place that God's people would least expect for him to show up. He shows up. He calls Ezekiel to be a prophet in exile. And Ezekiel's like, mm, no thanks, God. I know what happens to your prophets. And God's like, no, really. Mm. No, really. And Ezekiel sees this vision where 
because of course, all the people of that time were interpreting the exile as God has abandoned his people. Marduk, the high God of the Babylonians, is stronger than Yahweh, despite Yahweh's claims of being the God of heaven and earth, the greatest God, the only God. Mm. Our experience would say differently and prove differently. Our experience says that Marduk and the Babylonians are stronger than Yahweh. And that's why, that's why Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. And Ezekiel says, mm, no, let me tell you what I saw. I saw the glory of the Lord rise up from the most holy place and go out of the temple and go out of the courtyard gates. And where did it go? It went east. You know where east is? Babylon. And then he says this astounding thing. I will be a sanctuary for you in exile. What? Now, this shouldn't have been theologically revolutionary for that time, but it was. And then, of course, along with all of these unexpected places that are characterized by wilderness and exile and isolation and uh, enslavement, we also have the metaphorical places of spiritual and emotional desperation that we find in the Psalms and Job and Lamentations in the Prophets. Experiences of, of spiritual wilderness, spiritual exile, desperation, desert, darkness, lonely, exiled places. And this is where God works. So we have lots of these apparently unexpected people and places. People who are barren or lacking or unexpected in some way. Places that are wilderness, that are deeply lacking in some way. But God consistently works in these people and in these places. But why? Why? Well, because it's actually God being consistent with himself. God has shown us, God has told us what he is like and who he is and what his character is like. He has told us. So is it really unexpected? Or are we just in curvatus and say, curved in on ourselves and it's, so it's shocking for us? Among the many pieces of God's character we could talk about, I'm just gonna highlight these three. God's expected character is that he is creator. He did not just create in the past. He is creator and therefore he sustains all things right here, right now. And he is the God who creates life and order out of death and chaos. So why do we find him working in the places of death and chaos? Because this is who he is. He creates life and order out of death and chaos. That's why we find him there. He's redeemer. He's abundantly gracious and forgiving and just, somehow able to perfectly balance wisdom and justice and forgiveness and graciousness and compassion. He's redeemer and he's covenant keeper. You will be my people and I will be your God. We hear this refrain repeated throughout the prophets. You will be my people and I will be your God because remember, Remember, my people, I rescued you out of Egypt to bring you to myself to be my treasured possession. And if you've taken Torah with me, you know that special word, segula, right? 
I rescued you to bring you to myself, to be my treasured possession. And you wandered and you strayed, but I'm creator, I'm redeemer, I'm covenant keeper. And so one day you will be my people and I will be your God. This is God's expected character. That's why we find him working in all of these places. So if it is God's consistent and expected character, why are we so surprised when he works this way? And why do we resist it so much? Why are we so surprised? And why do we resist it so much? Turn to your neighbor. Answer that question. Why do we resist it so much? Excellent, thank you. You are very awake this morning. I appreciate it. So here's what we have to come back to again and again and again. God invites us to find him in barrenness and wilderness so that we might truly know him. This is abundantly clear in scripture, but we don't like it. Sorry, sore throat. Cough drop. God invites us to find him in barrenness and wilderness so that we might truly know him. We look for him in lots of places, but we don't like looking for him in the barren, wilderness, dark places. We don't like that. But this is what we are invited to do. So, for the next little bit, <clears throat> we are going to reflect and pray, sing a little bit. And as we sing, you're welcome to stand, you're welcome to sit. Whatever is most um, conducive for you to pray. I'm now going to turn this off, take this out, and I'll use this mic at the piano. Where are you experiencing barrenness? or wilderness right now. I would invite you to reflect on this 
and name these things before God's throne of grace. And then we will sing. of barrenness and darkness can you imagine life's God's life growing and can you imagine his light shining in that place can you imagine life growing and light shining 
in your places of barrenness and darkness. Has God met you in dark and barren places before? How can your memory of God's faithfulness to you and to others awaken hope in dark and barren places right now? As you reflect, name these things before God's throne of grace.
Imagine meeting Jesus in your barren darkness. Can you imagine finding him there and not somewhere else? As a final reflection, I would invite you to think about that. And as you do, listen for the voice of our good shepherd in that place.
Look to God, do not be afraid. Lift up your voice as the Lord is near. Lift up your voice as the Lord is near. Together, Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace.